Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. If this is your first time listening in, welcome. We appreciate you taking the time to engage with this timely program and your interest in international affairs. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, as well as your host for this episode. Every month, we take a look at some of the hottest topics related to international affairs and connect you with expert minds on these issues. This month, we are taking a deep dive into the foreign policy legacy of the Trump administration. As you will hear in our discussion with Gil Barndoller of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship, there is a wide disagreement on the overall grade the president should be given in this area. We hope that you will come to this conversation with an open mind and carefully weigh the insights provided. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please do check out our past programs wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please do consider subscribing to our program so you don't miss any future episodes. Comments and feedback are always appreciated too. Hope you enjoy! one thing we can all agree on as a nation it is that the presidency of Donald Trump was viewed extremely differently by people on either side of the partisan divide. Whichever side you subscribe to is not the point, but rather that this presidency draws very disparate reviews on a range of issues. In this interview, we are only looking at the Trump administration through the lens of what was accomplished in the foreign policy realm. This is not to say that domestic issues do not help to give a full picture of his presidency, simply that we will leave that discussion to other organizations for their own assessments. The goal of this interview is to provide one assessment of former President Trump's accomplishments, failures, and unmet promises from around the world. I remind you that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are those of the speaker, and the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire simply hopes to spread expert assessments through these discussions. To provide you with the necessary context to make your own judgments, here is Gil Barndoller, this month's interviewee on his own background. I took kind of, I guess, a meandering path to where I am now. I went to graduate school right after my undergrad and was, was lucky to go to the University of Cambridge and do a master's and then a PhD over there in history, military history, looking at British imperial policing in the 1920s and 1930s. And then after that, I joined the Marine Corps, came back to the U.S. and went to officer candidate school and became an infantry officer in the Marine Corps and served for seven years and change, a couple deployments to Afghanistan and then Guantanamo Bay in the Persian Gulf. Got out at the end of 2016 and then made my way down to D.C. and have been at a couple think tanks since then at the Center for the National Interest doing Middle East stuff and a think tank, a realist think tank called Defense Priorities. And then my kind of major thing is at the uh, Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America, where I'm a senior fellow and I'm working on a book on the, the U.S. all-volunteer force, comparing that to countries that use conscription. In the interest of transparency, Gill is also the son of World Affairs Council of New Hampshire's board member, Steve Barndoller, and was raised here in the state. He still has family in the area and tries to make it back up as often as he can. We thank Steve for connecting us with Gill and having Gill join the membership of the council. 
As I mentioned earlier, the Trump administration gets very disparate reviews on their foreign policy efforts. Recently, Gill was on a panel discussion with Dan McCarthy of Modern Age, who gave the president a, quote, easy A for his foreign policy efforts. While in another program, Joseph Nye rated Trump as one of the top four worst foreign policy presidents in our nation's history. Gill comes down somewhere in the middle on this. You can just isolate the foreign policy, and I think it's increasingly, and this is something the, the incoming Biden team is, is, I think, rightly banging on about. I think it's probably harder in some ways to isolate foreign policy and, and domestic policy than it, than it was a couple of decades ago. But if in as much as you can put foreign policy in a, in a discrete box, I, I would give the Trump administration kind of a, I think, a C minus in that ballpark, you know, not an unmitigated catastrophe as it's sometimes portrayed, but by the same token, nowhere near living up to the promises of the campaign trail, the promises the candidate made in, in 2016, the potential to reset U.S. foreign policy. You never get a wholly blank slate, of course, but there was an opportunity there, I think, to really reorient U.S. foreign policy in a lot of ways and, and do away or at least chip away at some, some old orthodoxies that are no longer fit for purpose. And I think not a lot of that happened. A major tenant of the Trump administration's efforts, both at home and abroad, were characterized by the campaign slogan of America First. This indicated that the world was taking advantage of the U.S. and its generosity, and that instead of the globalist viewpoint of the previous presidencies, both Republican and Democrat, now the U.S. would focus solely on what is in America's interests. However, many analysts have seen a lot of orthodoxy in what actually happened behind all of the bluster. I think, unfortunately, it was really the worst of both worlds in, in a lot of ways, in that you had this... America first rhetoric, and we, we can get into the, the tangled history of that. And I think in some ways that that's a little bit unfair. You know, the, the America first folks in the 40s as nativists and anti-Semites isn't quite fair. Regardless of that baggage, the way that the administration really pursued its foreign policy was so haphazard and sometimes hamstrung internally. But if you think of America first as kind of a realist prioritization of the United States' needs, it was not that in practice most of the time. A lot of the time it was blustering, always obnoxious and alienating to potential allies, at least at the surface level, but without any substantive reset in most ways. I would caveat that with saying China is probably the big signal exception to that, where there is a little more substance to America first. But in terms of how we dealt with Europe, in terms of how we dealt with the greater Middle East, we never even talk about it. anything south of our border, except for sort of immigration. Africa in the same way is kind of off the radar unless we have troops there or, or somebody dies. So no, I think in a lot of ways, we've got the worst of both worlds with this purportedly America First administration. A lot has been made about the hollowing out of the State Department in the past four years, with so many longtime employees retiring or quitting, taking with them decades of experience and connections. This, without doubt, makes the United States less secure, as it is much harder to make and keep friends if no one is there to answer the phone, or, even worse, the person answering the phone doesn't have the knowledge or training necessary to handle it. However, a large number of top-level appointees in national security and State Department were part of previous Republican administrations or had held positions in government before. Mike Pompeo and John Bolton stand out as two great examples here. So, how far did the Trump administration really stray from a typical foreign policy when you really get in under the hood? So I think that if we're looking at, at the extent to which Trump's foreign policy truly was disruptive in reality and not just in rhetoric, there's a lot of ways to look at that. And I think that the kind of the old DC cliche of, of personnel as policy is a good way to look at this. And I think that the 
the Trump administration proved that. If it proved anything, it proved in spades that who you surround yourself with and who you put in key jobs is much more important when, when the rubber hits the road. It's much more important than the actual supposed feelings or, or philosophy or even impulses of the principal. So I think you look at the national security advisors as kind of a, a good way to do that because you know those guys are, are not Senate confirmed. The president has carte blanche to pick someone who's going to be his closest foreign policy advisor should help drive the entire foreign policy and, and national security apparatus. And you look at the people Trump had in that job and you have Mike Flynn briefly, who of course, leaving aside all the insanity of the last couple of months, was quickly shown the door was I think a guy who was fundamentally, despite his resume and what he'd done in uniform, was, was fundamentally an unserious thinker. I mean, look at the, the book he wrote with Michael Ledeen, I mean, kind of crazy, ultra hawkish, borderline conspiracy theory stuff about fighting Islamic terrorism and about this, this global war kind of stuff. He gets shown the door. You have H.R. McMaster, who was a pretty conventional kind of, you know, central casting kind of guy was a general, was one of these purported sort of Petraeus vein kind of soldier scholars, you know, had a PhD and a book who was credit, but was a guy who ultimately pursued a pretty conventional foreign policy, a pretty sort of center-right Republican orthodoxy playbook, but at the same time, sort of hamstrung by trying to appease or satisfy Trump. And as a result, McMaster, you know, was portrayed as one of these adults in the room, I think helped put us dangerously close to a war with North Korea, you know, this idea of a, of a limited strike and of a punch in the face, burn their nose, whatever analogy we're using, that idea, I think, is extremely dangerous and became pretty close to disaster there. So you have him in, in position there, and at the same time, he's trying to make nice with European allies, with Asian allies, and, and sort of steer the United States towards a new national security strategy, a new national defense strategy focused on Asia and on great power competition. Some of that, I think, is, is healthy and sound and, and overdue, but None of that is, is disruptive or is fundamentally uh, rearranging U.S. foreign policy in, in, in that seismic way. And then you have John Bolton, of course, who was even for the George Bush and thereafter Republican Party falling off the table end of, of bellicosity and, and hawkishness. And I think did his level best to get the United States into a war with Iran, or at least to get the United States to a point where we could, we could bully the Iranians into surrender short of war, which I think is incredibly foolish. And of course, we ultimately did not go to war with Iran, but we came dangerously close in a, in a couple of moments. And then Bolton finally gets shown the door and you get Robert C. O'Brien, who's another kind of reversion to sort of Republican orthodoxy, you know, a guy who perfect fit in a, in a Mitt Romney administration that never happened, right? The kind of guy who is, I would argue, unhealthily concerned, if not obsessed with third, fourth tier kind of security threats. The Venezuela is the world. Iran is a bit above that, but these kind of things that to a hyperpower that is incredibly geographically secure should be lesser contingencies. It should certainly not be something that should dominate our foreign policy thinking. You look at all those folks, especially in that key position, and again, many of them would have been perfect fits for a more conventional Republican administration. Uh, they may have been constrained by the, the public statements, certainly, and the, the supposed preferences of the president. But I think generally they they got what they wanted, and the United States didn't, didn't stray too far in any direction, despite, again, the kind of surface presentation too far away from foreign policy orthodoxies. I mean, Trump comes in, I think, has the right impulse in the idea, if we want to look at one little vein, the right impulse thinking about Europe and thinking about NATO and, and you know, why is the United States still defending the wealthiest continent on earth from a Russia that is not for all of its intelligence capabilities and nuclear arsenal and election interference and every little thing. That country is a, a regional power to some extent, uh, you know, sometimes the, even the economic stuff sort of premise when I see people always comparing the Russian economy to Italy or Canada because that's not really, you should go by purchasing power parity and, and really close to Germany in that vein, despite the 
oil dependence and everything else. But nonetheless, I think fundamentally, the Europeans can defend themselves uh, and have been able to do so for 20 years and, and still rest under United States security blanket. So I think there were some good impulses there, but then you, and the president would say disruptive and, and I think in a lot of ways gratuitous things about our European allies. When push came to shove, pulled a few troops out of Germany. We added two more absolute security clients, you know, over to Macedonia and, and Montenegro, which have armies about the size of the New York Police Department. And are absolutely a security liability, not a not a gain. And we're really just prepping them for EU admission. When it comes down to, it, despite the rhetoric, despite the the bluster, it was sort of business as usual, even on what what seems to me one of the areas most ripe for real disruption, real forward thinking, and the real question about how America's interests are served by the sort of zombie policies of the post Cold War world. With a grade of C minus from Gill, it can't all be bad. However. One of the major areas that many people want to give the administration credit for is the fact that Trump is the first president in 40 years not to start a new major war. However, as you may recall, there were many times when it seemed the country was certainly on that path. First, there was the war of words with North Korea, comparing the size of each other's nuclear buttons and trading old-timey jabs like dotard. Then, there was the downing of the U.S. drone that, reporting states, the U.S. had launched a strike in retaliation, only to pull back at the last minute. This only scratches the surface. So, should Trump and his administration really get credit for his anti-aggressive stance his supporters want to point to? I think you kind of put, put the nail on the head there in that the, the thing you hear from a lot, of, a lot of people on the right and a lot of, especially kind of Trump's most ardent defenders, over and over again, you hear he's the first president not to get us into a war since I think I think Jimmy Carter is usually the, the metric there. And that's true as far as it goes. But at the same time, he certainly did very little until, you know, maybe a little bit of credit at the 11th hour, did very little to wind down any of the admittedly small, but kind of ongoing brush fire wars and, and interventions and, and quote unquote, advising missions that often include real combat that we've, that we've been in, right? There are still U.S. troops in Afghanistan. There are still U.S. troops in Iraq. There are still U.S. troops, albeit very few, as of a couple of days ago in Somalia. There's still U.S. troops in Syria, which I would argue is one of them is probably the least defensible, and the most dangerous, and the most gratuitous thing we're doing in the greater Middle East. Again, some late troop cutbacks and some stuff like that, and we and we doubled down in the Middle East and, and put more troops into the Gulf, and as as you said, came very close to war with Iran. So I do give the the president. Credit at, for sort of at the eleventh hour, pulling back and, and ignoring what I think was the, the consensus push in the foreign policy community, and and, and I suspect among his own uh, advisors, and in, in, in not striking Iran after the downing of U.S. drone, pulling back from the brink of war. But then, of course, we incinerated the second, third most powerful man in the country, Qasem Soleimani, and ultimately we got away with it. I think that's the that's the bottom line. I thought that that was incredibly rash and ill considered. But it didn't, there was this symbolic Iranian missile strike, and the country is obviously, despite some of the threat inflation you hear, is obviously extremely weak, is, is a regional power and nothing else, and is pretty constrained even there, and, and ultimately did not want to go, go to war with the United States and risk that. So his kind of erratic, sometimes bellicosity, we got away with one there, and in some ways that, that's important and shows the limits of Iranian power. But I think that even just going to the point of flirting with a conflict with either North Korea or Iran, He's crazy, not to put a fine point on it, but there are no vital U.S. national interests in either country, short of, obviously, you get the North Korea nuclear issue, but the only vital interest is keeping him from using those nukes or proliferating them to a degree. But in either country, is there any reason to be escalating things or pushing towards a war? Both of those problems are pretty well fenced in and, and can be contained. So 
putting ourselves in position to get into a, into a shooting war with either of those countries, which the United States win, but at, at grievous cost to, to us and to certainly to the countries in the neighborhood, it's pretty indefensible. So I guess I guess my point is if you if you play with matches and next to a pile of kindling and you don't start a fire, to me that's not something to give somebody a lot of credit for. Also, it cannot all be bad if the rating for the administration is simply slightly below average. Therefore, what would be an area where Gill would give the president credit when it comes to foreign policy? I think the biggest success Trump had as a, as a foreign policy president, I would say, is, is reorienting the conversation on China. I think things were going that way to a degree anyway. I personally think the early Obama administration was very naive about China, was still embracing these arguments from going back to the 1990s about sort of giving China a stake in the international system and sort of entwined co-prosperity in this chimeric idea, which I think is dangerously naive. And what's really happened in, in reality is, is far closer to we've given them the, the keys to the kingdom and kind of mortgaged the house in a lot of ways and let them get away in some way, cases with theft, in some cases openly transferred technology and certainly manufacturing to China. And that's done tremendous damage to the American middle class, to American prosperity, especially in certain parts of the country, but has also allowed the Chinese economy to explode, the Chinese military capability increased dramatically. And last but certainly not least, the, the explosion of Chinese prosperity has also been a tremendous contributor to global warming. I mean, there, there are thousands and thousands of coal-fired plants that are making the, the climate a lot worse, a lot faster as a result of that direction. I think Trump was an accelerant, as he is in a lot of things, to the shift in China policy. I think it would have happened. At some point, you can't ignore the reality staring you in the face. But I think he sped up that shift by whatever you want to call it, maybe maybe five years. I think that's really important, given the trajectory of Chinese economic growth, military growth, growth and power and influence around the world. So I think that reframing was helpful. I think that the trade war is probably a failure on its own merits, but I think restoring the idea of tariffs and of using trade in a more proactive, merciless way and not just bowing the knee to, to free trade kind of dogma, I think is really important. I think even the Biden administration, the early signaling has been that they are not just going to junk that wholesale. They're going to be deliberate in looking at what, what worked or what may be in the national interest in terms of maintaining some tariff policies. But there's still a lot to written. I mean, I'm in favor of a, uh, a pretty serious rethink and, and decoupling from China, certainly in key strategic industries, and we're nowhere near that. And I personally doubt Trump had the stomach to really do that, although I think some of his advisors maybe did. Some of the more competent people in that administration were some of the real China hawks on trade. Your Matt Pottingers and your Robert Lighthizers and a few of those people so I think Trump's, how he shifted the conversation on China is very salutary. I think that should be applauded. And I think, again, some of that will carry over in the new administration. Sitting somewhere in between, depending on your perspective, I guess, are some of the unmet campaign promises, which in foreign policy really focused on burden sharing and bringing home the troops. Overall, did the administration live up to its campaign promises in this realm? Well, I think Trump, to his credit, ran as a very clear alternative, you know, to, to go back to, to, I think, Barry Goldwater, you know, the choice, not an echo when he when he ran against first a, a host of a dozen plus Republican contenders and then uh, and then against Hillary Clinton, obviously, and offered a clear rhetorical break with the past and offered different, you know, concrete policy choices and, and, and differences. You know, Hillary Clinton, obviously, had been Secretary of State, long career in government, it kind of embodied the foreign policy orthodoxies of the of the post-Cold War hegemonic United States. I think Trump, whether you're talking about the key things to highlight, I guess, would be China policy, obviously, and, and trade policy linked in with that. Immigration and border security, I think, is more, wouldn't exactly call that a foreign policy issue, but it, it, it overlaps. It's in that kind of realm between the two. And then, of course, it's become a tagline. Unfortunately, it's become in a lot of ways a little more than a tagline or an applause line is the ending endless wars. But withdrawing 
most or, or even potentially all U.S. troops from the, from the greater Middle East and trying to put some kind of break with the post 9-11 global war on terrorism, whatever we're calling it now, with the campaigns in the greater Middle East against Islamic extremism, which I think by and large have, have been stalemates or, or outright defeats and have been a tremendous drain on American blood and treasure and also really on, on bandwidth and on the focus of the nation and its foreign policy establishment. In the end, it would seem that we should be able to come to some agreement on the overall rating for the administration in this realm. However, these days, it seems the idea that politics stop at the border no longer holds true. As mentioned before, foreign policy experts have rated this administration's foreign policy from one of the worst to one of the best. How do we get such differing viewpoints? I think that's testament to a couple of things, probably. One is just the polarization of, of the United States, and even in the foreign policy community, which tends to be not exactly bipartisan, but there's a there's a kind of, I would, I would say in general, people in, in especially in Washington, in, in the foreign policy establishment, whatever we want to call that, that's a broad, sometimes almost meaningless term, and I use it a lot, so I'm guilty. But I think in general, American thinkers and kind of public figures on foreign policy tend to play between the 40-yard lines. So there's sort of acceptable bounds of what's seen as kind of a mainstream of varying degrees of hawkishness or dovishness or engagement or disengagement and all of that. But I think that most people in both political parties, most figures in that world play within the 40-yard line. And obviously, President Trump certainly did not in his rhetoric, in his presentation, and what he claimed to espouse and, and claimed to be pushing towards. I think that's part of it. And I think just the nature of Trump's rhetoric, Trump's presentation as someone that would thumb his nose to the world, to stir the pot and, and unnecessarily antagonize allies is a big part of that. I mean, a lot of, if you're in the foreign policy community, you, you probably have a regional specialization. You've probably got friends and contacts and maybe years of your life spent in Europe in the kind of NATO circuit or in, in, in Asia or in the, in the Middle East, wherever it may be. And seeing your country antagonizing friends and allies Word allies gets overused a lot when you talk about real true treaty allies versus versus partners. But regardless, you see all that, that tends to get people's backs up within the foreign policy establishment in a certain way that we're not we're not playing nice, at least, at least in the public realm, regardless of what's said behind closed doors. Maybe a good example. I mean, US presidents have been going back to Kennedy, maybe even a little earlier, but have been browbeating browbeating European NATO members about their lack of defense spending and the fact that they should be standing on their own two feet. Uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, I think before he was in office, famously said when he was still in the army, said if we still had U.S. troops in Europe 10 years, at this point he was speaking in the early, I think early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, if we still had U.S. troops on the ground in Europe, NATO would have been a failure. And of course, we're 60 years removed from that, and there's still you know, tens of thousands of U.S. troops in Europe. So those discussions have always gone on, but there's a difference between saying it behind closed doors and, and a little bit of public signaling versus browbeating American partners, you know, in public and, and unabashedly. So again, I think the critique itself is perfectly sound. So I think that that sort of explains why one of the reasons Trump has, uh, has, has drawn such divergent reviews. And, and again, if you think the U.S. has largely gotten its foreign policy wrong or, or has made serious mistakes post-1991 or, or even post-2001, a lot of those kind of people are so frustrated, and I'm you know, close to that camp, but are so frustrated with the direction of U.S. foreign policy and, and that playing between the 40-yard lines and the failures, especially the failures of the global war on terrorism, that they're inclined to give, I think, undue benefit of the doubt and undue rope to someone that, that at least purports to be opposed to that. Looking ahead, there are a number of challenges that will face the nation in the coming years, both at home and abroad. What should the U.S. focus its attention on, in Gill's opinion? 
I think fundamentally the United States needs to turn its attention homeward. It's not isolationism. That's not that's not even necessarily a withdrawal in all but all but the military sense from and even there from certain parts of the world. But I think you you look at this country and you don't even need the, the icing on the cake or the Capitol Hill riots down here two weeks ago, although that's useful in, in showing what I'm talking about. But this country has I think hemorrhaged broad-based prosperity. I don't have time to get into a, a broader discussion of trade and some of the factors of that, and, and, and some of that is global and to some extent out of the hands of certainly easy policy fixes. But I think this country, and I don't necessarily think the United States is coming apart at the seams. And when I read sort of second American civil war kind of stuff, I think that's that's even at this juncture pretty overwrought. But no question, Trump's election to me is far more important than anything he did in office. Most of what he did in office, I mean, not someone I'm a huge fan of, but Ann Coulter, I think actually of all people who was an ardent Trump supporter, you know, and wrote Tongue Bath book and then and then got off the train in the last year or two. I think she was the one that described him recently as being the opposite of a duck. You know, the idea that a duck is on the water is placid on the surface and then furiously uh, paddling and swimming under the water where you can't see it. And the Trump administration in a lot of ways was the opposite, you know, furious contortions and gesticulations and everything happening above the waterline, but actually very little getting done under the surface. So I, I think what the administration did even in the foreign policy realm, some of it matters, some of it's important, but but it's far less important than Trump's election. What Trump's election showed for all of the uh, things running through that and whatever kind of quality Hillary Clinton was as a candidate and all kinds of other issues, there was a bit of a perfect storm there. But I think you can't ignore the fact that in a, in a healthy, functioning, prosperous country, Donald Trump shouldn't be a serious contender, let alone president of the United States. So bottom line, I think the United States needs to needs to refocus on uh, the bulk of its attention internally. That doesn't mean we're still going to be the preeminent power in the world and pretend that we're not. And there are plenty of things that affect the United States internationally. I think very few things that are worth necessarily going to war for, but we have real interest in other parts of the world. And I would kind of foot stomp on Asia there. I think the preeminent strategic challenge to the United States, certainly outside its own borders, is China. And I, so I think, and, I, and that's the one place where I give the Trump administration some credit. But I think we need to focus a lot of our attention on restoring broad-based prosperity, on getting all Americans reinvested in, in this country. And that's that's a, probably a generational project. And we may be running out of time because of a lot of serious headwinds, whether we're talking about competition with China, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about wherever we're going with automation and, and artificial intelligence and what that means for the future of work and for potentially a lot of people that are economically superfluous. I mean, there's some major, major things coming that we're, we're still figuring out how to confront. But I think a lot of what we do overseas is unnecessary. Certainly, the, the extent to which U.S. foreign policy is militarized, I think, is a, is a tremendous, if nothing else. Yes, there's a, there's a certain amount of blood and treasure expended. Not to um, trivialize that or undersell that, but more importantly, the amount of bandwidth and attention we spend on things outside of borders when this country is, for all of the, the challenges we're facing, this country is still remarkably secure. More than anything, I, when people talk about American exceptionalism, I think they should not stop, but start by describing this country's providential geography. The fact that we have the French ambassador a century ago by the great line is that the United States is, has weak neighbors, on, weak and friendly neighbors, you could say, on two borders and fish on the other two. So we are, we are functionally, strategically an island and, and have been for a century plus. We should start any discussion with recognizing that reality. And yes, ballistic missiles and terrorism and other things are not wholly contained by borders. But I think we undersell how important that strategic geography still is and how that should influence our decision making. I want to thank Gil Barndoller, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for the Study of Statemanship at the Catholic University of America, for his time and insights. We hope you have enjoyed his expertise and continue this conversation with your friends and family. 
it is important for us all to stay engaged and aware of what is going on in the world. Thank you again for listening in. We appreciate your support and interest in our work. If you are interested in learning more about the programs of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, we invite you to visit our website at www.wacnh.org. There, you will find a variety of speakers programs with top global experts, as well as an archive of this podcast's past episodes. You can also learn more about our international visitor exchange programs and join our newsletter. Your support is vital for the continued success of these programs. As always, Tim Horgan is the host, producer, and audio technician for this podcast. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, with Love Not War by Squire Tuck as our interlude. Until next time, stay well and stay informed. Mm -hmm.